We're in our third week of Advent. We're also in our third week of uh, this new study in the Gospel of John. We're going to keep going after Advent and work our way through uh, this entire Gospel, um, God willing. Um, so we come today, we're going to read in a moment. Um, we're going to, our passage today is verses 6 down through 13, sort of the middle part of the first section of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, I'll read uh, the stuff we've already looked at, verses 1 through 5, just to give us some context there. But I, I want to keep reminding us here as we start the study of what the point of the Gospel of John is, what he says. He says, remember he says back at the, at the end of the book, looking back on it, um, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written uh, in this book. He says, But these, the things that he has written down, for example, what we're going to read today, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the goal for us today is not just to hear a story and go, oh, that's nice. Our, our hope today is that the Spirit's going to be at work in us and he's going to move in us to the point that we believe, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, that we believe and have life in the name of Jesus. With that in mind, let me read for you. I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1, uh, verse 1 down through verse 13. Uh, this is the very Word of God, holy, infallible, inerrant, it's authoritative. That God has given it to us so that we know Him rightly, know ourselves rightly, and, and walk rightly with Him and with people all the days of our life. So give great attention to the reading of the very Word of God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you help us to believe? And that by believing we might have light. I might have life. And that the light of God, your light, the light of Jesus even, might shine upon our lives. Enable us to walk rightly with you, with God the Father, with God the Son, with God the Spirit, that we might bring glory to your name and that all the world might know that Christ is the Son of God and that salvation comes only through him. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So we get to, to verse 6 here and the story changes directions a little bit. The arrival of John the Baptist and the one we call John the Baptist here, in the, in the middle of this beautiful passage on the coming of Jesus into the world, seems sort of abrupt at first. You're talking about Jesus and the Word became flesh and all those things. And then, you know, all of a sudden, there's this man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, he, he shows up like an uninvited guest at a Christmas party, right? You know, we know John the Baptist was important. 
all four Gospels talk about him and his ministry extensively. It can be a little confusing, though, because we're reading about the, we're reading from the Gospel of John. John is the apostle. John, the other John that is shown up on the scene is a different John, so he's not writing about himself. He's writing about a different John. This is John that we call John the Baptist because he's the one who we'll see later on in this chapter baptizes Jesus. So we call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. It's not necessarily that if he came to town, he would go over to Calvary or Cross Point to church or anything, but he's the baptizer. He's the one who baptizes Jesus. And so we distinguish the two between John the Apostle, John the writer of the Gospel of John, and then John, uh, John the Baptist. And so we try not to get confused with those things. John the Baptist here is, is Jesus' cousin. He's the one who leaps in Elizabeth's womb uh, when, when Mary comes to visit. And so he's important in this in this whole story. And so the question, though, here still is, why does John the Apostle, writing this gospel, bring up John the Baptist here? Well, the reason is because John's trying to make the point that the Messiah has come, and lots of people had already decided that John the Baptist was the Messiah that was coming. And so John, the Apostle, needs to make a point that there's only one Messiah, and it's not John the Baptist. Uh, we see in Acts that there were still even... After Jesus' you know, ministry and his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, there were still disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, who hadn't heard that the Messiah had already come. And so it's important as John's writing this gospel after the fact to get the word out that yes, the, the Messiah has appeared. We know we're told in some history books that 200 years later there were still disciples of John around. And so John, the, the gospel writer here, trying to be utterly clear right up front that the Messiah had come into the world and the Messiah is not John the Baptist. And so for us, though, as we're reading this, knowing who the Word is and who the Messiah is, what's here for us? Well, as we celebrate the coming of Christ into the world, we need to see that one of the points of this passage and the point of our celebrating uh, Jesus' arrival even is something that maybe we take for granted. And that is that there is only one true light. There is one Savior. And it's not John the Baptist or anyone or anything else. There is one. It is the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, later on in this gospel, John records Jesus saying this. It says, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We don't get to just pass by him or go around him or have an acquaintance with him. He says, no, the only way to the Father is through Jesus. And what he means there is that his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection are all are the, the one thing we need all collectively together. The work of Christ is the one thing that we need for salvation. And there is no other way. So John here is essentially drawing a line in the sand. And it's not a line, you know, you see kids playing sometimes and there's a line in the sand and they'll draw the line and then they'll kind of fudge and change their mind and erase the line and draw a new line. That's not the way this works. This is the line. Jesus is either God and salvation comes through him or he's not. And there is no salvation. There is only one Savior. It's Jesus the Christ. And so John, the writer of the gospel here, is calling us to leave behind all other false messiahs. Even if the messiah that we're putting our hope in, like John the Baptist, 
isn't even claiming to be the Messiah. He spends almost his whole life saying, I'm not the Messiah. And people keep following him around going, are you the Messiah? No. He says, there is one. It's Jesus. In his baptism, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus. And so what we see is that even John the Baptist spent his life telling everyone that Jesus was the one. Jesus was the Messiah. Throughout the Gospel of John, we hear denials from John the Baptist. Even later in the first chapter here, we hear him telling people that he's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah, even though he comes in the spirit of Elijah, which we understand can be confusing. He, he's not the prophet like maybe Moses would have been. He says that he is simply a voice in the wilderness. We read that earlier in our call to worship, Isaiah 43. We saw that prophecy from Isaiah about one who's going to come like a voice in the wilderness, screaming forth, make the path of the Lord you know, clear. And John says, I'm that guy. I'm not the guy. I'm the guy pointing to the guy. Jesus is the guy. And the ministry of John the Baptist also marks a transition in how people relate to Jesus. Before John, faith had meant waiting on the Messiah to arrive. So we're, we're waiting. We're, God's people were in a constant state of waiting, waiting for God, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for salvation, waiting, 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 waiting. But with John coming up, the direction sort of changes. He starts proclaiming something different. All the way from, from Adam and even Abraham through Malachi and Nehemiah, there's this waiting. But John marks the time where faith in Jesus moves from waiting on him to actual following him. He's going to start calling people to follow Jesus. And then Jesus is going to call people to follow him and to believe in him and to trust in him. No longer waiting on him, but trusting in the one who has arrived. Following the one who has come from heaven. Who has taken on flesh and lives among us. Lived among us. and In this case, lives among us in, in John the Baptist's day. So John the Baptist makes it clear that he is simply a witness to the true light. He says to all his followers... Uh, and, and remember, John was easily one of the more popular public figures of this time. And he looks out to all these people who are his disciples, who he's been training, who he's been preaching to, he's been baptizing and doing all these things. And they're all thinking, you know, some, many of them at least are thinking, this is the God, this is the Messiah, this is the one that's going to bring salvation. And to them and to all the world, John the Baptist says this. He says, he who comes after me, obviously he's talking about Jesus, ranks before me because he was before me. Now wait, John the Baptist was born first. How is that possible? Yes, John the Baptist understands that Jesus is eternal. John 1.1, we read, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's pointing to the Word, the eternal Word, who is Jesus. He also says, later on he says, He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Look, untying sandals was a task too demeaning for a disciple, for a friend. It was reserved for the servants, the slaves even. So what John is saying is that in comparison to Jesus, I'm not even worthy to be his servant or his slave. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, to do the most menial task. In chapter 3 of John, we're told that, that, that John the Baptist makes the point, he says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And then a couple of verses later, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. Remember, Paul, John's one of, the, one of the most famous, popular people, public figures around. He could have easily said, 
more glory for me, more glory for me, more glory for me. I, I like this popularity thing. This is I can get some benefit here. I can get some mileage out of this. But he doesn't. Because he understands the role that God's called him to do, which is not to point to himself, but to point to Jesus. He says, Jesus, the one who comes after me, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. John understood that his purpose in life was to point to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that John was simply a lamp, a lamp that sheds light on Jesus. We've got to understand that we were created for the same purpose. Our purpose, in part, is to be a witness to the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as our catechism says. We declare to the world that there is life and light in Jesus Christ and not in any other thing on this earth. And we are called to live a life that reveals that truth as well. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says, uh, records Jesus saying this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What are we to be doing? Pointing to the glory of Christ, just like John the Baptist does here. He points to Jesus and says, He must increase. I must decrease. You know, we're quick to talk about stuff we love. Families, kids, politics, sports, music, movies, TVs, even finer points of theology. But what about Jesus? John gives us the example to follow. He must increase. I must decrease. That's what it means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, at least in part. The reason, though, that it should be painless for us to be a witness for Jesus, to point to His glory and not our own, is because we have seen and experienced His grace. If we are children of God, if we have been called and set apart by God and given faith and we believe and put our faith and trust and hope in Christ alone, then it should be relatively painless for us, even though it will be costly. It should be, we should find joy in being a witness uh, for Jesus Christ because we've experienced His grace. You know, we see uh, in, in his life where he not only, you know, Jesus, where John says, I'm not worthy to untie the straps of Jesus' feet. What do we see in Jesus' life? We see him gathering his disciples and doing what? Washing their feet. Taking the lowest job. Taking the form of a servant. Serving others. While, while he's the one that deserves all the glory, we see Jesus as well coming not to be not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to lay himself down, to be nothing. The Apostle Paul in Philippians says that, that he gave everything, that he became nothing. Now, was Jesus nothing? No, but he considered himself nothing. He came taking the lowest place, serving, not demanding. But yet we are to worship him. Jesus showed us a perfect example of how to rightly walk with God. He died on the cross to give us the power to walk with Him and the right to walk with Him. Jesus' life is an example for us, but more than that, it is the salvation that we need as He does the work that He was called to do. What we learn in this passage is that even though we would naturally reject Christ, you know, we see here that even His own people did not accept Him as their Messiah, the Jews that He first came to, the people who historically had had the Word of God and been the people of God, they're here, they... If they, if they are the true people of God, they trusted in Him, but many of them did it. Many of them rejected Him. And so He's rejected by His own people. 
But what we see is that even though we would naturally do the same and reject Christ, God has worked on our behalf and our hearts that we could be made His children. And what that means is we don't get just a, you know, a visa or something that allows us entrance into the kingdom of God to be visitors or guests or even you know, citizens on some level. What we get is the right to be made children of God. Through faith, we gain a father, not a dictator or a president or president or, or even simply a king, even though he is that. He's not simply that, because a king may be our king and be distant and removed, but Jesus isn't. God, Jesus gives us access to God, our Father, who gives us the right to become children of God. Jesus came into the world so that you and I might be children of God. And it's not because we deserve it so much and have figured out how to make our lights shine so brightly for Jesus. This passage teaches us that salvation is completely by grace. It says here in verse 12 that... But all to but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 13 says, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we're not born again, as chapter 3 talks about it, by, by natural means of childbirth, by the natural way. We're born again in a spiritual sense beyond that. Um, we're also not born, he says here, by blood which that is by a bloodline, meaning it doesn't matter who your daddy is or where you were born or more specifically, even whether you are a descendant of Abraham uh, in this context. It, therefore, you know, to be a part of Abraham will be a part, to be a part of God's people historically. You know, it doesn't matter because it's not by natural means or salvation doesn't come through our ancestry. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jew or Gentile, is given eternal life. John also tells us here that we're not born again by the will of the flesh or the will of man. That salvation does not come through us by a desire or by our effort. We cannot make it happen ourselves. We cannot earn salvation. Our adoption into the family of God is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that even the faith that we express is a gift of God. Let me turn over there real quick. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us without Jesus. By nature, children of wrath like everyone. But there's good news. John, Paul goes on and writes, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right, that's our favorite part of that verse, where he just stops in the middle and goes into praising God and doxology. He says, he just stops in the middle of a sentence and says, by grace you have been saved. Paul is saying, do you not see how amazing this is that those of you who deserve condemnation have been given life by the God who loves you, who is merciful and kind, and in his great love has sent his son to die for our sins. Six, and raised him up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But then he says this. Let's, the verses in this passage that are maybe the most famous because they give us such a great picture of how we come to salvation. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you get that? That we're not saved by good works. We're saved, and then we are called to do good works as a result of our salvation, but not to earn our salvation. And, that, and it isn't just Paul that makes that clear in those passages. John is making that clear here in the first chapter of his gospel. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. All of salvation is by grace alone. Most of us will have an abundance of gifts under our trees this Christmas. And some, you know, some of us are, are excited. Some of us probably have kids who maybe wonder what's in that box and the anticipation is growing and they can't wait. They're, they're probably begging you, can we open our presents the day we get out of school or a few days earlier or on Christmas Eve or I, I want it, I want it, I, I want it. Whatever it is, I don't even know what it is, I want it. But no matter how great those gifts are under our tree, there is not a greater gift in all the world than the gift of faith that opens eye, opens our eyes to the great mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That opens our eyes to see that he's much more than a baby in a manger that we celebrate one day or one season of the year. He is the Savior of all who would come to him in faith. And he is to be celebrated every day and every moment in every aspect of our lives, our careers, our relationships, our families, our vacations, our holidays, and our pains, and then our struggles, and then our heartaches. He is to be celebrated everywhere, all the time. But it is a high and difficult calling to follow Jesus in that way. Because we naturally live for ourselves. We are naturally bent towards me. We hear John the Baptist say, he must increase, he must increase, and I must decrease. And it might give some of us pause. Because maybe we've come to Jesus so he can make us great. But that's not the point. That's not why he calls us out and sets us apart. He calls us out and sets us apart so that we might point to his glory and to his greatness and the fact that he is the true light that comes and brings salvation to all who believe, all who trust in him. He must increase. I must decrease. Just because we become Christians doesn't mean that we become exceptional at worshiping him nonstop and always, you know, always having him at the center of our lives. We're in a fight to be worshipers. We're in a fight to live holy lives. We need strength to fight the battles, to keep the faith. We need his strength. And our strength, we're as helpless as little Isaac John up there. If JC goes home this afternoon and says, you know, JC, how old is, hey, how old is Isaac now? Two months. Two months. Hey, two months. You're, you're doing great, son. You're growing. You're becoming a fine young man. You can take care of your lunch change your own diapers you can, just go ahead and get out of them you're self-sufficient 
How's that going to go for little Isaac John there? Not well. Not well at all. Because he's dependent upon the people around him. His mother, his dad, others to care for him. The reason that baptism is such a beautiful picture of the gospel is it pictures us, at least for, for infant baptism, in our true state. Helpless. We read it in Ephesians 2, right? We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Without hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, has not left us alone in the crib to fend for ourselves. No. He's redeemed us and given us new and everlasting life. He's provided everything that we need for life and salvation. Just like little Isaac's trusting that JC and Ellie are going to provide everything that he needs for life and his growth as a human. God has given us in Jesus everything that we need for life and salvation. And yet we still chase after other gods. We still pursue other idols. We still give ourselves to lesser things, minor passions. Remember that, you know, C.S. Lewis said that oftentimes we're like the little girl who's playing in mud slum, in the slums in the mud pots, who's been offered a vacation at the sea. But because she can't imagine how grand it is, she's satisfied to stay in the mud plots, in the mud in the, in the mud holes, making mud pies. While just down the road. It's a vacation at the sea. What we're given is so much more. So much more than the grandest vacation we can divide. Than the, the greatest life that we can imagine. Jesus comes and offers us more. And offers it to us eternally. And yet in our selfishness, we still want to increase my kingdom, my glory. But yet we're to follow John the Baptist because he's following Jesus. But we're to follow John the Baptist who says he must increase. I must decrease. What is this? It's a call to look deep into our own lives, to examine our own hearts, to ask, am I living for Jesus or am I living for Mitch? There's always a time where Mitch is going to be answering that question for me. And so the next question is, when I realize that I'm living for Mitch, what do I do with that? Do I tend it and grow it and sow seeds there? Or do I repent of it and follow hard after the glory of God? That way, the way of my increase is the way of darkness. But repentance and faith lead us into the light into the glory of God. Remember we said that the Gospel of John has two themes. Light and glory. He is the light of the world. And He is the one who's worthy of our praise. He is the glorious one. And so our response to that is to walk in the light to bring Him glory. He must increase. I must decrease. The purpose of this table before us is to help us fight to fight to be worshipers, to fight to live holy lives, to fight to walk in the light, to fight in repentance and faith, to pursue, to be zealous for good works, as Titus 2 says. Now, Jesus Christ has died in our place and taken the penalty of our sinfulness upon himself. 
He's given us the gift of being able to come to this table and gain strength. He's given us the gift of receiving grace for our daily lives. The, the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us as we walk by faith, as we repent of our sins and trust in the work of Christ alone as our hope. Uh, today and, and for all of eternity. We pursue lives that honor and glorify Him. And so the call to us today is to fight for holiness, to run to Him in faith, to trust Him to be our Savior, to trust that He is the true light that shines hope and joy into our lives. The thing that we need is mercy. We need relief. And in the gift of Jesus Christ, we're offered that. We're going to begin our move towards the table today by singing of his glorious and miraculous birth. A birth which was worthy of the praise of angels, as we'll see in the song. And, and this is a vital part of celebrating the life and death and resurrection of our Savior. We celebrate not just the cross, but also the manger. But never the manger without the cross. Because Jesus came, was born of Mary. He was born to die for us and for our salvation. And through him... We have access to our eternal Father. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing and, and go to the table. Father in heaven, we ask that, that you would make us lights that shine for Jesus. That, that you would, through Christ, make our lights shine for him so brightly that we would be like a city on the hill that Jesus talks about in Matthew. That we would go to him and trust that he alone would be the light of our lives, bringing peace and joy through us to, to all who would believe. God, would you draw us to yourself? Especially if there are any among us who have never truly believed in the name of Jesus, have never been adopted in your family. Would you give us faith and draw us to you today? Would you make the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of the manger, and the beauty of the gospel clear to, to each and every one of us today? God, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for Jesus. The Holy Spirit, work in our lives right now. Convict us of our sin. Draw us to the Savior. Help us know that we are children of God, children of the King, more importantly, children of our Father, who has given us salvation through the gift of His Son. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his glorious, majestic, and everlasting name that we pray. Amen.